uh, by looking kind of, I don't know, chronologically around the different writings in Paul's letters about the Spirit. So we've been working through 1 Corinthians, and, you know, we've had these principles about the character of the Spirit, uh, Spirit of truth, Spirit of freedom, uh, catch us on fire if we, if we don't, uh, don't stifle it, um, uh, that uh, the Spirit can uh, make us children of, of the kingdom, and all the different things we've talked about, about the character of the Holy Spirit, have all been uh, defenses of the idea that uh, when we think about the character of the triune God, and we are given the task of building God's kingdom here on earth, that the Spirit is uh, that which enables us to and strengthens us in our pursuit of the kingdom of God. But Paul wants to say something even more fundamental about the character of the Spirit. And so our text for today is 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 58. It's somewhat of a a long one and a bit of a strange one, but it makes a great point. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. God gives it a body that he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, and fish another. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and the stars differ from uh, another star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and the natural after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, who, as are those who are of the earth, as is the heavenly man, as are those who are in heaven. And just as we have borne the image of earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen when I tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we will be changed in the flash and the twinkling of the eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For what the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in, in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God, He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So at first, it seems easy to take what Paul's talking about here, and of course, you know, you think about some questions around eschatology. I don't think eschatology is, in fact, the main point of this passage. Uh, Paul is describing a great mystery that will happen when the dead are raised, but his main question here is to engage on an issue that demonstrates that what the Spirit does is something that is even broader than simply building the church. 
Now, the point here, at least I think as Paul sees it, is a defense of the idea of resurrection that is rooted in the idea that there is no life, there is no breath, there is nothing without the Spirit to make the world possible. That when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're not simply talking about uh, that you know the the special office of the triune God that helps enable the building of the church, but we're talking about something that is self-sufficiently God and able to not only create but sustain even our own existence. And the character of the argument Paul's going to make about the resurrection here is a testimony to that point. So Paul is writing to the folks in Corinth, and basically from what we can tell, we, this is one of those great examples where we don't have both sides of the debate. So we've got Paul's side of the debate, and we can likely infer on the other side there might have been some Sadducees. They didn't like the resurrection very much. Or there might have been some Gnostics. They didn't like the resurrection very much. But we know from looking at the way this is kind of written out in the Greek that Paul had gotten to the end of Corinthians and he's like, all right, I'm just going to kind of append this chapter that's about waxing this philosophical school in Corinth that didn't believe in the resurrection. So he's going to kind of add on this argument that admittedly is like, I don't know, comparatively complex argument. He's really kind of moving through some uh, interesting stuff here. So from what we can tell, he's addressing the other side of this debate. And he's trying to address, we know, whoever, whatever caused them to think what it was, whatever the specific doctrine was, we kind of know the thrust of the doctrine. And the thrust of the doctrine was, was for these folks in Corinth that, like, there was earthly matter and there was heavenly matter. And so they said, resurrection's impossible. Because when you're dead, you're earthly matter. And when you're risen, you're heavenly matter. So how do we take heavenly matter and derive it from earthly matter, they're things of basically two fundamental or different classes, and so therefore, whoever it was that was this group of folks in Corinth, they rejected the idea of the resurrection, and they thought they were being faithful in doing it, because they said, why would we ever think about contaminating the beautiful, powerful, infinite, heavenly God with any commerce with things that were dead, and things that were, you know, material and gross? And so, you know, it's like... A, there were a series of questions that they had in this debate about what the resurrection would look like. Like, if there's a resurrection, there's all kinds of questions that are left unanswered, and they're reasonable questions to ask. Like, for example, what does your resurrection body look like? Like, are you going to be late 50s foxy tray? Or are you going to be, like, early 30s trench-coated tray? I don't know. What is, what is the one that God will choose to rise tray in perfect form? I'm really worried that I'm going to come back with my 80s mullet. I mean, it's probably when I was in the best shape, and I don't, you know, really know if it's the most perfect presentation of me. But that's the kind of question that the passage is talking about. It's talking about the question of what exactly, if there's a resurrection, would the resurrection body look like? A very concrete question. What kind of material would it have ascribed to it? And so Paul is kind of making an argument against these folks in Corinth to say, hey, we can't even imagine the faith if we can't imagine resurrection, but watch what happens to the role of the Spirit as Paul describes that. So we'll start with, this is one of those places where like reading the words in their context really matters. Really matters a ton. We'll start, you know, so very at the beginning where we start, I guess, what is that, 30? Let's start with 37. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So the Greek word there for sow, the root word is spiero, and it means to like cast out seed or bury seed. And the word for come to life there is zoepitai, which is like 
to be made alive, to be made animated. And, and, and the analogy that Paul, the metaphor Paul's setting up here is kind of beautiful, but it requires, and I'm sorry to do this to everyone, a bit of knowledge of Near Eastern agricultural history. So uh, folks used to think that seeds were dead. Like we know nowadays, in modern botany, we know that the seed, at least in order if it's able to germinate, is still alive. It's waiting for, it waits latent in the soil for some kind of trigger. And when the appropriate trigger prediction, er, er, conditions happen, the seed starts to, uh, you know, the cells in the seed start to divide and the seed starts to grow. But in the ancient days, when you, the way you would have thought about a plant cycle is that the seed represented the death of the plant. It was the end of the plant's life cycle. The plant may well have died after it produced the seed. And the seed was this kind of like hard, weird kernel that in no way really looked alive but in at least as they thought about agriculture what you do is you'd put that seed in the ground and then that seed was quickened by god and it's god's quickening that took the seed and caused it to grow and not to get too specific but you know that's also the way they thought about growing humans too they thought about the womb as basically soil and you'd put seed in the soil and um, god would quicken that seed and give it life and allow it to grow because you know, the biology of the, of the woman or of, of the ground really had nothing to do with what caused the seed to grow. The seed was the dead part at the end of the cycle of life. I guess it was like the grand agrarian Hakuna Matata that the seed would grow, it would live, it would die, it would fall to the earth dead, and then God would raise it again. And so whether it was a seed or whether it was a baby or whether it was a plant, the whole idea that, that would have kind of animated their way of thinking about what was going on was the idea that God took, and, took something and quickened it, took something that was dead and gave it a trajectory. That's why Paul says in, you know, uh, what, 7 and 8, when you say you don't know what plant the body will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something, but God gives it the body as he is determined, and to each kind of seed he gives his own body. If you walked into the top dresser drawer or the top drawer of our kitchen, the one right next to the utility drawer, it used to be that you'd reach in and there's just like this random mass of seeds. You'd have no idea it was in there because a bunch of seed packets had exploded. And if you took a handful of those seeds and you threw them in the ground, you'd get a great testimony to this. We have no idea what any individual seed might become, but God has, in the process of quickening it, given it a form. God has taken that dead thing and has given it a direction and an orientation and made it into something that was other than it was. And it says specifically here, this is where Paul started to engage these philosophical types. He gives each its own body. Now the Greek word for body there, soma, we know it because we know somatic. Now we, we use this kind of term for body in one way or the other all the time. And soma is a really interesting word. It doesn't just mean dead material. It means material that is animated by God. So as Annabeth stands up and picks a flower, that is her soma being animated by the breath of her spirit of God in order to do something. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, you know, there's this group of folks in Corinth that thought there were heavenly bodies and there were earthly bodies and there was heavenly material and there was earthly material. And the point Paul is making is that there's only one kind of material. The only kind of material there is is the kind of material that is shaped and formed and animated by God that it's impossible for us to think of, I don't know, I mean, obviously there may be various kinds of straight tra state transitions, but those state transitions are nowhere near as interesting as the fact that God can take material reality and do whatever God wants of it, because that's God's nature and that's the power of God. That's why Paul says, not all flesh is the same in 39. People have one kind of flesh, animals another, 
birds another, fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of heavenly bodies is one kind. The splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another. Stars differ from stars in splendor. The point is that God can do lots of things with Soma, whether it is physical earthly Soma or heavenly Soma. God can take what is bodily and shape it into something different. And, you know, this difference between heaven and earthly, heavenly and earthly bodies is really complicated. It would have been the whole thing that the folks in Corinth who denied the resurrection put their, I don't know, their entire stance was based on this. They'd say there were some things that were bodies from heaven and some things that were bodies from earth. And if God, I don't know, changed an earthly body into a heavenly body, that would basically violate the rules of the universe and soon we'd have cats and dogs living together and who knows what. But Paul makes a point here when he talks about heavenly bodies and earthly bodies to use a very specific term. For heavenly, he uses the term epi-uranos, which means fitting to or appropriate to heaven. And when he uses earthly, he uses epi-gaianos. Those of you who have spent enough time in downtown Hillsborough or Carborough know what the Gaia part is. So epi-gaianos means uh, fitting to or appropriate to the earth. See, the point Paul's making here is that heavenly and earthly do not describe the essence of those things. They describe the way God has shaped them. And the other way we know that Paul attributes, you know, the, that all of these things are a product of God's footprint is what common does he say? What, I love this part. What does he say that they all have in common? Whether it's earthly or heavenly, star, planet, Splendor. Anybody remember or got a stab at? We've talked about this word a lot. There's a Greek word that gets translated as splendor that we've talked about a ton. Doxa. Go back and listen to the sermon on the shepherds and the glory of God. Doxa means the kind of substance or weightiness of God. The thing that characterizes God as being unique. So what Paul's saying here, although... Our translation doesn't get at it quite as well as we'd like to, is that, yeah, people in Corinth, there are some things that are kind of bodies that seem like they belong to the earth. There are some things that are bodies that seem like they belong to the stars. But guess what ties them in common? The splendor of the God who made them. The splendor of the God who is the creator. That these things have anything that is noteworthy as a result of the hand of the creator that fashioned them. So what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? What, what's the point for this in, in, our, in our series to say that there is splendor in each of these things? Well, Paul makes a very subtle shift here about the idea that things are manifestations of the God who created them, that things are not about heaven and earth and their essence, but that they are, I don't know, appropriate to heaven or appropriate to earth because they're united by the fact that there is a God that shapes them and we, we miss it. But the thing that unites these things is that, well, basically Paul is saying that everything in the world that is in some form or some state, whether uh, it be life or death or heaven or earth or spiritual or physical, any of those things are not essential designations. They are designations that are made by God, that God decides, and that because God decides that those things exist, they exist. We have this tendency of thinking that our categories are more real than God. We have this tendency of asking, well, do certain laws apply to God? To me, that question is incoherent because it presumes that there's something that is prior to God, 
that is uncreated, that determines the direction or dictates the course of the universe. If God really is the one who creates that which is appropriate to heaven and that which is appropriate to earth and everything, if God is the one who differentiates between life and death and what is earthly and what is spiritual and all those things, then there is no law or rule or concept above God. There is simply God, and these things are an act simply of God's decision. And that's why Paul says in 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised as power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. What, friends, is the translation of raised a spiritual body? Is the translation of raised a spiritual body, it is a magic ghost that floats off into space? No. That it is raised a spiritual body is that it is raised a body of breath. That it is raised by being breathed into and animated by the character of the Holy Spirit. That what Paul is saying here is that for the Corinthians who deny the character of the resurrection because they think there's a distinction between earthly and material, Paul is saying you don't even have the preconditions for life if you aren't breathed into by God. The seeds that this grass grew out of don't live if they're not breathed into by God. If the Spirit of God, the breath of God, does not move them, you do not exist if you were not breathed into by the breath of God. The thing that Paul is saying here by implication is that people think the resurrection is a hard thing to understand and is a hard thing to accept, but you haven't thought very much about the conditions that allow your life. Do you realize how improbable it is that you exist? That nothing forced you to exist? That there was no reason why you had to exist? There was no necessary thing that said that any one of us had to exist. It was only by the decision of, of loving God to breathe into each one of us and give us life, that the miracle of life and the miracle of love exists. Those of us who were worried about the, I don't know, epistemological grounds for affirming the resurrection are missing the point that what we ought to even be shocked more by is the fact that we live and we exist in the conditions for love and for growth and for coming together exist at all. Those things too ought to wonder, be a wonder for us. Those things too ought to force us to ask, why are we here? The people who are, you know, your kind of existentialist atheist types who ask the question, what's the meaning of life? At least they have a little bit of that wonder. They ask the question of, what is it that caused us to be here? And what is our purpose and orientation? Paul is saying, for the person of faith, that if you see life around you, that the Spirit is moving, because the Spirit is the thing <coughs> that breathes life into everything. And as a result, when it's time for us to build a church and even to think about things like the resurrection, what we do is not say, man, this is a big lift, but instead we say the Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit that breathes everything into existence has made it possible for us to live. Let us turn ourselves over in love and submission to that Holy Spirit so that we too may be made fully different. There may be a natural body that is appropriate to the earth. When I die, there's a corpse that's going to be put in the earth. There may be a spiritual body that is appropriate to moving and, and, and breathing and living in the kingdom that is yet to come. Paul doesn't use the word heaven when he describes that body, though. That's the crucial thing. He doesn't say there's a heavenly body. He says there's a spiritual body, a body with breath, a pneumaticos. And so what he's saying is that 
There is no part of our reality, whatever we might decide about distinguishing between questions that are material and immaterial, <coughs> spiritual and not spiritual, whatever we might decide, there is no life and no movement and no nothing without the breathing of the Holy Spirit. And the best we can do is breathe it in and instead orient ourselves towards and build and work for the kingdom so that that spirit can be fully manifest in us. That's why Paul says, so it is written. <coughs> the first man became a living being, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of, of, of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are the earth, as is the tragedy, of the he or as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Paul cannot be talking about the order of the universe, since we all know <laughs> that the spiritual, if it's defined as being heaven, had to come first. We know the description in Genesis that God goes down and creates. So what is Paul talking about here? Paul is talking about the first kind of animation that breathes life into human beings, and that is the work of the Spirit. But then he's saying that if God is able to breathe life into human beings at first out of simple dust, then we cannot be surprised if God reanimates us or breathes life back into us and makes us perfect and orients us towards the kingdom. It is one continuous motion. <coughs> it doesn't seem at any point to be out of God's wheelhouse or capacities. And so if we believe in and if we if we are if we wonder at the character of life, then we ought not wonder at the character of what God can do in the grand scheme of things, heaven was first, but for the human, we were shaped out of dust by the very breath of God. And even in our breath, in our living, and even when we die, the, when we are nothing more than dust, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, all the little, maybe little calcium thrown in there for good measure, it is the Spirit through uh, Jesus Christ and through the power of the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus Christ that will extend that resurrection to us and make it so that we live again. The point is not necessarily just to defend the doctrine of the <coughs> resurrection. Of course, it's to, uh, to do that, but it's to defend the idea that there is nothing in the world that exists without the movement of an animation of the spirit. That is why Paul says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Because we are, by nature, perishable. We are, by nature, made up of dust. And the point is, being made up of dust makes it difficult for you to inherit eternity. But God, because God loves us and God blesses us, breathes into us. And not only breathes into us to live, but breathes into us to perfect us. And because we are perfected and because we are made one with God, because we are extended uh, at the role of being children in God's kingdom, then death is defeated and immortality is established forever. It is the spirit that breathes into everything and makes it live. It is the spirit that creates by hovering over the waters. It is the spirit that takes dust and makes it life. The ostensible case that we're, uh, that the case that, that, that we ostensibly cease to exist is not the worst part of death. God can reverse that in the blink of an eye. What is matters here then is that what is the sting of, of death? The sting of death is sin. And what is the worst part of sin? It's that it separates us from God. 
If we believe in a God who can give us life and give us life together in, uh, in and through the Holy Spirit, so that we are one body seeking his kingdom and seeking to do the things that God calls us to do on earth, then not only is uh, sin defeatable, but death is defeatable. And ultimately, we claim <coughs> that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we stand firm in the promise that the Holy Spirit has given us. Amen.